So if you've been with us, you know that we just completed a series in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And so this morning, we sort of make a big leap because whereas that was a New Testament letter, uh, now we're jumping into the book of Daniel. Uh, So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open them up to Daniel chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along, not only as I read but but also go through the text, you can find a Bible in the seat in front of you uh, underneath, and it's, it, that, uh, if you use that Bible, you'll find our passage on page 737. Now, Daniel is, again, very different from uh, the letter to the Philippians. It is a book of prophecy. It, it's also got uh, uh, narrative in it, uh, historical narrative, uh, but it is found in the Old Testament in the section of the Old Testament that is the prophets, uh, specifically the major prophets. Um, Daniel is a book written by Daniel, who was a prophet, and it was written in the 6th century B.C., so any, sometime between 600 and 500 B.C. Now, uh, that actually, as we will see in later sermons, um, that uh, assessment that I just made is challenged today by scholars who don't believe it was written by Daniel and don't believe it was written in the 6th century B.C. And the reason they don't is because the prophecies that Daniel gives are so precise and so exact about future historical events that people say there is no way someone could have prophesied that. That, that this, whoever wrote this wrote it after the fact and pretended to be Daniel. Now, there's no factual argumentation for that. It's simply uh, the reason they give that argument is because they do not believe in a God who plans and foresees and prophesies the future. They're looking at it completely from a naturalistic viewpoint, and of course, we as humans cannot predict the future on our own, so they say it can't happen. But because we believe in the God of the Bible, we know that this was written by Daniel in the 6th century B.C. and that God gave him the insight into the future. Now, if you look at the book of Daniel, you can divide Daniel pretty much evenly. If you're thinking about how do you divide this book, you can kind of divide it in the middle. There are 12 chapters. Chapters 1 through 6 contain that history, his, uh, historical narrative, biography, if you will. And chapters 7 through 12 contain the prophetic visions, the apocalyptic visions of the future. Daniel, along with Ezra, is one of the two books in the Old Testament that have whole sections written in what's called Aramaic. Aramaic was the language of the governing authority of that time, which was the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And so it makes sense, then, that part of Daniel may have been written in uh, that language because Daniel, as we will see, was a high official in the government of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. The way that you find this kind of um, language division, you know, the rest of the Old Testament, by the way, is written in Hebrew, and the whole of the New Testament is written in Greek. But again, you have this section in Daniel and a little bit in Ezra 
in Aramaic. In Daniel, chapter 1 is written in Hebrew, chapters 2 through 7 in Aramaic, and chapters 8 through 12 in Hebrew again. Now, we don't know exactly why uh, scholars have uh, made suggestions as to why it was divided up that way, but one of the things that a lot of scholars are kind of united on is that Daniel chapter 7, which kind of like functions as a, as a bridge there, if you will, because 7 is uh, written in Aramaic, which is mainly Aramaic is part of that biography section, but 7 is part of the vision section. However, it's in Aramaic, so it kind of functions as this overlapping chapter, if you will, and chapter 7 seems to be uh, the sort of climax and central part of the book of Daniel. Uh, sometimes we think, we think in, in, in American terms, and we think that maybe the, the, the end of a book is the best part or the most important part of the book. That's where everything comes together. But a lot of times in Hebrew, in the Bible, you'll find that, that it functions differently, that, that sometimes the center of a passage or the center of a book is the, the most important part. And a lot of scholars think that's what you have in chapter 7. One scholar says the scope of se chapter 7 is the whole of human history. And then chapters 8 through 12 unpack certain parts of that whole picture. So our text today, we begin just by looking at the first two chapters of Daniel chapter 1, which says this, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So what I want to look at today uh, as we consider verses 1 and 2, you notice the title of the sermon here is Three Kings. I want us to focus on the three kings that are mentioned here in verses 1 and 2. And the first king that is mentioned here is Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Now, even if you know your Bibles well, probably for many of you, that name doesn't ring a bell. You, you might not have ever heard of that name, or maybe you've heard of it and you don't even really know who he is or what he did. You don't need to know anything about him, really, I mean, from just looking at this verse, to, to re recognize that, that he's the one that gets the short end of the stick here. In these clash of kings and kingdoms, he's the one who gets conquered. It's pretty easy to see. Now, to understand who he is and why this conquering came about, I'd like to spend a little bit of time here uh, just looking back at Israel's history. So Israel, the nation, began in a place called Ur of the Chaldees, which really was the area of Babylon, uh, around the, the, the region of the, the Euphrates River. In that area was a man named Abraham, and he without deserving it at all, was a pagan just like his surrounding neighbors, worshiping the pagan gods of, of the Ur of the Chaldees, but God 
reached into this world and in his sovereignty and in his sovereign mercy pulled Abraham out of paganism and said, you will be my people and I will be your God. And you've probably heard of Abraham. Abraham was told by God that he would, through Abraham, bless the entire world. That Abraham and his descendants, through Abraham, the whole world would be blessed. And God said, I want you to leave that area, and I'm going to call you and give you a land of your own, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. And as you know, Abraham had a son named Isaac, and then Isaac had a son named Jacob, and it was Jacob whose name was changed to Israel. And Israel had 12 sons, which ended up being the 12 tribes. God eventually gave Israel its land. And God made a covenant with the nation of Israel. And in that covenant, He said, look, I'm going to give you this land. If you obey Me, I will bless you and you will stay in the land forever. But if you turn away from me, I will curse you and you will be exiled from this land and taken somewhere else. And while Israel lived in that land, for a while things were good. They had a king named David, you've probably heard of him. David's son Solomon then reigned, and it was especially during Solomon's reign that Israel sort of lived in the lap of luxury. Solomon Probably, I mean, by my calculations, is probably the richest man that ever lived, if you look at the amount of gold that he received each year. The temple of God was built during Solomon's reign. Uh, Israel had peace. But Solomon's reign also signaled the beginning of the end. Because when Solomon died, a war began. And the nation of Israel was divided into two. In the north, it was called Israel, and in the south, Judah. And so we see here right from the beginning that this Jehoiakim was the king of Judah. He was the king of the southern nation there in that land. Of the two kingdoms, neither one was really what we would call following God perfectly and obeying his statutes. But of the two, the northern nation of Israel was definitely the more wicked I don't think they had a good king in the northern kingdom of Israel. And what happened was that God kept his promise. They fell away from him. They became just like the nations around them. And in 722 BC, God sent the nation of Assyria. And Assyria was a brutal nation. Assyria would come in, rampage, rape, pillage, destroy, burn everything, and haul people off. And when the northern nation of Israel was conquered by Assyria, it was decimated and was gone for good. 2 Kings 17 says this, The Lord was very angry with Israel. And the king of Assyria captured Samaria, which was its capital. He carried the Israelites away to Samaria. And it says... God removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. So Judah is remaining. Well, what's going on in Judah? And who was Jehoiakim? Well, again, while the nation of Israel had no good kings, uh, the nation of Judah had some. 
One of these good kings was a king named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah came in and made reforms. Uh, There had been some wickedness that had gone on before. He made some good reforms. But nonetheless, even while he was cleaning things up, 2 Kings chapter 20 says this, Isaiah the prophet said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried away to Babylon. Nothing will be left. So this king is told one day the nation called Babylon will come in and take everything away from the nation of Judah. Why? What was going on? Well, again, Hezekiah was good, but what we find out as we read further is that one of Hezekiah's sons named Manasseh took the throne. Manasseh became king when he was 12 years old and had a 55-year reign, and Scripture says that Manasseh was worse than any of the pagan kings that surrounded the nation of Judah. What are some of the things that Manasseh did? Well, Scripture says he, he actually set up false altars to false gods. I mean, God was angry. Some, some kings actually came in and tore down those false altars that had been erected. But some kings just kind of forgot to tear them down, and and God was angry even by the neglect. But Manasseh went into the temple of God and set up altars to Baal in the temple. He used fortune-telling and and mediums and necromancers, which God strongly forbid. And Scripture says that Manasseh actually burned his son alive as an offering to the god Moloch. So Scripture says that Manasseh led Israel astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. That's how bad the nation of Judah got under the 55-year reign of Manasseh. They were more evil than the nations around them. Fast forward a few kings and we reach Jehoiakim. Things are not going well in Judah. Jehoiakim is actually not even his name. This man was a pitiful excuse for a ruler. He was a puppet king placed there by the Egyptian pharaoh, Necho, who had hauled off his other brother and into Egypt where he died. So this Jehoiakim puppet king was set up to rule. Judah was a weak man. And Scripture says that Jehoiakim taxed the nation of Judah and took all the silver and gold that Judah had, took all the money that he got from taxation, and he gave it all to Pharaoh. You can imagine what was going on in Judah at that time. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and Scripture says, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And it was during his reign that another power rose the nation of Babylon, whom God had predicted by Isaiah would come in and destroy Judah. Babylon's king was Nebuchadnezzar, and and that's the second king that we find here. In verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. 
Now again, we don't need to know anything about him to see from these two verses that Nebuchadnezzar is the king who gets the long end of the stick. Nebuchadnezzar is the king who is the conquering king. King Nebuchadnezzar, you've probably heard of. You've definitely heard of him if you know your Bibles. He is widely regarded as Babylon's greatest king. As a lot of great kings are known, he was known as Nebuchadnezzar the Great. He was a military man and and, uh, conquered lots, but he was perhaps even more remembered as a great architect. Nebuchadnezzar turned Babylon, that area that Abraham had been called from, into a modern-day Mecca type city, a showcase city. Uh, He had amazing palaces built. He had ziggurat temples built. And he also designed for his wife, you imagine this, guys, Uh, you know, you give your wife something for her anniversary. Nebuchadnezzar gave as a gift to his wife one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. His wife was, uh, that makes us all look bad, his wife was uh, a mead, and she uh, longed and, 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 and missed the, the, the floral uh, arrangements of her home nation, and so he built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, uh, which was a technological marvel so that she could stroll through there and enjoy the plants and the trees that were there. That was Nebuchadnezzar. And according to Scripture... Uh, After three years in power, Jehoiakim stupidly rebelled against the most powerful man on earth. 2 Kings 24 says, In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. For three years, Jehoiakim served him. And then he turned and rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, lines up with that account. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That's why, because Jehoiakim had rebelled against him. When Jehoiakim rebelled, thus began a three-stage invasion of the kingdom of Judah by Babylon. The first stage was in 605 B.C., the second stage, 597 B.C., and the third stage, 586 B.C. In the second stage, in 597, Nebuchadnezzar would carry off roughly 10,000 Israelites into exile, including the prophet Ezekiel, who while in exile would prophesy to his fellow exiles about what was going to happen. In the third stage, In 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, patience ran out. That was the year that he came in and and utterly destroyed Jerusalem and burned down the temple. One Old Testament scholar says this, this time in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar spared nothing and no one. He besieged Jerusalem, and after 18 months of great suffering, starvation, and disease, his army broke through the walls in 587 B.C., poured into the city, slaughtering as they went. They looted the temple, and they burned it to the ground. They destroyed and burnt the city of David, reducing it to rubble and ashes, and it was the most traumatic event in the whole of Old Testament history, and the awful horror of it is memorialized in the sobbing poetry of Lamentations written by the prophet Jeremiah. 
who witnessed it. But the book of Daniel here opens by describing the first stage in 605. That was the most mild uh, rebuke, if you will, of Jehoiakim by King Nebuchadnezzar. That, that was like Nebuchadnezzar saying, calm down, don't rebel against me anymore or worse will happen. 605 is when Nebuchadnezzar kind of politely laid siege to Jerusalem and, and decided to just carry off some of Israel's finest, leaving the poor. And included in that exile was a young man, a teenager by the name of Daniel, who was hauled off into exile into Babylon. Now, <coughs> scholars believe Daniel was about 14 years old when he was taken a thousand miles away, never to see his family, his homeland, his culture again. Daniel entered Babylon at age 14, and we believe he en his life ended there around in his 80s or 90s. He stayed in Babylon the rest of his life. Now, next Sunday, we're going to consider what a great tragedy this would have been for Daniel and the other young men carried off. I thought about that this week as uh, last Sunday, as you know, Michelle and I were gone, we took a college trip and took our two oldest, Luke and Andrew, 300 miles away and a, a five-hour car trip uh, to Grove City College. And even that felt a little bit too far, you know. Now, some of you have probably sent off three or four kids to college and are thinking, what's the big deal? But, you know, if it's your first, you kind of think, man, I don't, do, do I really want them five hours away? That's going to be kind of hard. Now, imagine these teenagers not 18-year-olds, not being driven by their parents and with a nice send-off, not with cell phones and texts, but hauled away by a man who rules the world a thousand miles away from everything you've ever known, never to see them again. But that's for next week. This week, I simply want us to focus on the actions of the three kings that we find here in the text. Now, the first two we find in verse 1, the third king we find in verse 2. And the third king that we find in verse 2 is the most hidden king and yet by far the most powerful of the three. The third king is not the king of Judah and he is not the king of Babylon. The, the third king that we find in verse 2 is the king of kings and lord of lords. Now, if we look at the first phrase here in verse 2, and the Lord gave, that phrase, those four words, are certainly the most important words of these first two verses and maybe the most important words of the entire book of Daniel. Because those four words, and the Lord gave, lay out for us exactly what Daniel and his friends would need to remember the entire time they were in exile, away from everything they knew. The Hebrew word here, translated the Lord, is not actually the proper name of God, which is Yahweh. Rather, it is a title, the title Adonai. The title Adonai is the most exalted title given to God, and it is very appropriate for this verse 
because Adonai means one who possesses and exercises absolute sovereign power and authority over everyone and everything. See, what what we're told here in verse 2, subtly, you can fly over it, is that it was Adonai. It was the one who alone possesses and exercises absolute sovereign power and authority who gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. This should come as no surprise if we've already read prophecy, because Jeremiah Jeremiah in Jeremiah 25 says this, thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven, because you've not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Look at those words. I'm going to send for the the king of Babylon, the most powerful man in the world, and he's going to be my servant, whether he knows it or not. I will send for him, and he will destroy you. One hundred years before Jeremiah's prophecy, the prophet Isaiah said what we heard read earlier in the service. A hundred years before Nebuchadnezzar would destroy Babylon, Isaiah prophesied by name who it would be who would lead Israel out of exile and back into Israel. And what does God say? This king, who is going to be called Cyrus, though he doesn't even know me, I have called him by name. I will lead him by my hand. I will knock down every barrier in front of him, and he will bring my people back me. And he says, I call you by name. I name you though you don't know me. I am the Lord. There is no other Lord besides me. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light. I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. And after 70 years in exile, that's exactly what happened. Cyrus, the king, released the exiles back to their homeland. But as we close, I just want to point a couple of things out. Look back at verse 2. Because here I think, at the very start, it's important to note that the first things spoken of are not human exiles. The book of Daniel is going to focus primarily on Daniel and his friends. It's going to focus on humans, kids, teenagers that were taken away into exile. But the first thing focused on are not the humans that are taken. So I think if we read that, we could say, well, yeah, of course they're taken away. They were sinful. They deserved it. God said, if you sin against me, I'm going to destroy you and and take you into exile. But no, notice that the first things spoken of are not the human beings, but the vessels of the house of God. The first things that Daniel notes were taken into exile by Nebuchadnezzar were the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. And where were they taken? They were taken to the land of Shinar, to the house of Nebuchadnezzar's God. 
What was Nebuchadnezzar saying in doing that? Nebuchadnezzar was saying, you believe in a God who is inferior to me. Your God can't save you. I am here and I'm going to strip your God of his vessels and I'm going to take them with me and I'm going to put them in my God's house to show you that I am God and that my gods are God and that you, Israel, are not. Your God is nothing. Nebuchadnezzar was making a point and he was going to make this point to these teenagers as well when he tries to brainwash them and turn them into good citizens of Babylon. What must this have seemed like to the people living in Judah? That Nebuchadnezzar could come in and, and, and freely uh, pillage the house of God. Maybe it would seem to them that God had failed. I would say so. I would say that him stripping the temple must have seemed like a complete and utter failure of the God of Israel to accomplish his purposes. Notice where those vessels were taken. Daniel doesn't say they were taken into Babylon. He says they were taken into the land of Shinar. And if you know your Bibles, you know where the land of Shinar is mentioned. In Genesis chapter 11, it says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks. They said, come, let us build a city and make a name for ourselves. The land of Shinar is where the Tower of Babel was constructed, where people said, we don't want to follow God, we want to make a name for ourselves. It's where the rebellion first happened, and it's the same land, the land of Shinar, where the Tower of Babel was built, would eventually be called Babylon. That's where Nebuchadnezzar carried these vessels. Who dwelt in that land? Before God called him, Abraham dwelt there. Abraham was a citizen of the land of Shinar. And it was Abraham that God called out of that land and said, you're not going to be there anymore. I'm going to make you my people. I'm going to give you a land. You're going to go far from there, and you're going to worship me. And now everything has been reversed. Abraham is long gone. God's people have failed. And now even God's temple has been moved back to the land of rebellion, to the land of Shinar. What does Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 seem to show? On one level, it seems to show that all has failed. Yahweh's temple has been invaded, its vessels removed, taken back to the land of Shinar, and it seems by all outward appearances that God has lost but Daniel makes it clear in this subtle way that despite all outward appearances, God was winning. It was God who was in control the entire time. Daniel makes it clear from the beginning here in, in verses 1 and 2 that, that though there are three kings mentioned, only one is sovereign. It wasn't Jehoiakim and it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. Christian, it was your God. Behind what appeared to be a tragic defeat was the invisible hand of providence. 
so sovereign that Nebuchadnezzar was a pawn in his almighty hand. Nebuchadnezzar thought he had one over on God. He thought he could take the vessels and take them back to his temple and show that he was more powerful than God, and all the time, God handed them to him to take. We will find that statement and that theme, the sovereignty of God despite all outward appearances throughout the rest of the book of Daniel. But we find it ultimately at the cross of Christ. See, it was on the cross, the, the, the cross where the ancient of days, where, where the Son of Man, which we will hear about in later in, Ch- in Daniel's uh, chapters, it would seem on the cross by all outward appearances that God had lost. Here Jesus came proclaiming to be the Messiah. He was the one who was supposed to win the day, to to boot out the Romans and to take over and set up a theocracy like David had in the land. And instead, the Romans, who he was supposed to kick out, nailed him to a cross. And it was on the cross that, that this Messiah cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From all outward appearances, he was a failure. And yet, in God's sovereign and almighty plan, it was the cross that fulfilled exactly what God had planned. When Jesus fulfilled that plan, he cried out, it is finished, letting the whole world know that what seemed like a defeat was really a victory. Christian, do you sometimes look around this world and feel as though God has lost. You know, Scripture says that we are exiles, that we are, like Daniel and his friends, walking around in a land that is not our own, looking forward to the day when we will be taken to our true home. I would imagine for Daniel and his friends, it must have seemed at times like God was far away that he had lost. Daniel needed to be reminded and we need to be reminded today and next week and through the rest of this series and through the rest of our lives that our God is powerful and that he is in control in spite of present circumstances. We need to be reminded that our king, the sovereign one, is also our savior. Though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one king reigning over all. So we will not fear, for this truth remains, that our God is the ancient of days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this passage. We are so grateful for This reminder, Lord, this great reminder that you are the one who is ruling over all events in human history. Father, please remind us that though outward appearances may seem as though you are losing, Father, you have already won the day in Christ. Remind us so that we may leave here today with hope that one day all of our troubles will be a thing of the past when we dwell in the promised land. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.